Well, good morning. Hope you're doing well this morning. And uh, if you're here and you're not doing well this morning, I'm also glad you're here. And I pray that these next few minutes would be an encouragement to you. Uh, I want to begin with a story to set us, set us up for where we're going. It's a story by this name of Jose Rivera, who is a bandit going through all these small towns in Texas and stealing from these stores and people's houses. And so people were getting really upset. And so they put all their money together and they decided to hire a Texas Ranger to find this Jose Rivera guy and get all their stuff back. And so this Texas Ranger does all of his research and comes to find out he knows where home base for Jose Rivera is. It's the small town across the border in Mexico. And so he makes his way down to this small town. He finds his way to a little beat up cantina in the small town. He walks into the bar and he asks some guy sitting at the bar, have you heard of Jose Rivera? And can you tell me where he is? At this point, the young man at the bar actually looks up at the Texas Ranger and says, well, you're actually in luck. He's sitting right over there. And so this Texas Ranger goes up and taps Jose Rivera on the shoulder and said, excuse me, sir, are you Jose Rivera? To which the guy looks up to him and said, sorry, no English. So this Texas Ranger undeterred tells the guy at the bar, hey, come here and interpret for me. And so he's going back and forth. He's getting nowhere. Finally, he gets very frustrated. And so uh, the Ranger tells the interpreter to tell Jose Rivera this, tell him that if he doesn't tell me where all the money is stolen and where I can recoup it and where I can find it, I'm going to pull my gun out of his holster and shoot you dead. At this point, the translator says this to Jose Rivera. Jose Rivera finally understands that this guy means business and thinking over his options decides, well, it's probably better to stay alive than to be dead and have no money. And so he begins to tell the interpreter where he can find the money. And so Jose Rivera says, tell him to go out of the bar then to take a right, go about a mile, and he will see a well. Near the well, there will be a very tall tree, and under the, beside the trunk of the tree is a large concrete slab. He'll need help removing it because it's very heavy, heavy, but under that slab, he'll find all of the treasure and most of the money I have taken. At which point, the young interpreter turns to this Texas ranger and says, Jose Rivera says, Jose Rivera says, go ahead and shoot. <laughs> now, why do I share that story? Here's what I know. I think most of us would assume that we want to do the right thing, right? Theoretically speaking, if we're in a difficult situation, we say we're going to do the right thing, or maybe we're going to do the God-honoring thing, or in our context, right, we want to follow God with our lives, and we think that, and we all really do desire it, and yet we sometimes find ourselves in situations well, that can be really hard. We're following God can be not advantageous to us. Or worse, we can find ourselves in situations where honoring God could actually be harmful or disadvantageous to us. And in those moments, even though we really do want to honor God in our life, generally speaking, we find ourselves in times not doing what we thought we were going to do. And so today, as we continue through the Gospel of Mark, the question that we are going to look at that lays before us this morning is this, what does Jesus do when we turn our back on him? What does he do, even though we have good intentions, we want to honor God, or we, we want to pursue Jesus with our life, and we're trying really hard, yet we find ourselves in a situation where we do something where we thought we would not do, well, how does God, how does Jesus respond to us 
in those situations. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And so today we'll be in Mark chapter 14. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If not, there's a black one around you. Uh, you can turn to page 903. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. We are closing in on the gospel of Mark. Uh, we actually only have a few weeks left. And to uh, today we are going to see the betrayal or the handing over of Jesus as he gets arrested. And so these last few weeks, we've been studying the last few weeks of Jesus's life. And then last week, uh, Pastor Grant here was from Renewal Church that is planting in Greensboro that we're supporting. That was awesome. We read the passage where Jesus, after the Lord's Supper, goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And yet his disciples, who said, we are going to stand with you, we will even die with you, keep falling asleep on him. They, keep, they can't even pass the test of staying awake just a few more hours. And then his betrayal is at hand. Here's what it says. Mark chapter 14, starting in verse 43. As you can see from the screen, we're reading 30 verses this morning, but we're going to go through, through them somewhat quickly. It's a narrative, and I think it's a really fascinating story. And so we're going to read it all together. Here's, here's what it says. Verse 43, while he was still speaking. And so this is again, Jesus was with his disciples saying, my betrayer is at hand. Now it's going to happen. It says, Judas, one of the 12, one of his disciples suddenly arrived and with him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And so again, a group is sent by the Jewish authorities. They come to arrest Jesus, and they're clearly prepared for some sort of resistance, especially because they think Jesus is trying to overthrow uh, the, at least the Jewish, uh, talking about this Messiah. They think he's going to use the Passover that's going to happen, that's just beginning, to use this as his moment to kind of rally the troops, if you will. And so they assume he's not going to go peacefully, and so they're ready for a battle. Verse 44, his betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kissed, he says, and this is Judas, Judas, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he, he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And so this was the marker of, Jude, of Jesus to be identified and betray. Remember, this is at night. There are no street lights. It's really hard to make out who is who, particularly perhaps when there's trees and they're in a garden and all these other things are going on. And so this is the marker that this is Jesus, the one that I kiss. And so Judas, again, being a disciple, knew who Jesus would be. He kisses him. He calls him rabbi, which is an intimate, but of course, in this situation, very cheap greeting because Judas is now betraying his own rabbi and his own teacher. Verse 46, they took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. So what happens is they take Jesus, and in the process, one of the men in the arresting party gets his ear cut off. Now, of course, Mark, unlike the other Gospels, is pretty quick, so he doesn't tell us all of the details. However, we know in John's account of what happens here in the, in the Gospel of John, uh, the person who cuts off one of these servants' ears is Peter. So Peter goes, he cuts off this guy's ear, and if we're being honest, it's not because he had really precise aim. What was happening is he probably wasn't aiming for his ear, but that's all that he actually got, and he cut it off. And of course, in John's gospel as well, it tells us Jesus then commands Peter to put his sword away, and then he heals this guy. And I just have to wonder what is going through this man's head. He's coming to arrest Jesus, gets his ear cut off, and then this guy does something absolutely miraculous. He's like thinking, well, maybe I'm doing the wrong thing here. I don't, I don't know. But that's what happens here. And then it says this, verse 48. It says, Jesus said to them, he's talking to the people who are arresting him, have you come out with swords and clubs? As if I were a criminal to capture me. 
Every day I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. And so again, in a surprise to anyone who thinks someone is trying to lead an uprising like the Jewish authorities did, uh, Jesus actually surprisingly provides no resistance, right? In fact, he's actually angry with them that they would assume as much. That, they would, that he's angry that they would assume that he would try to do some physical violence or fighting against them, right? And of course, he says, you've had plenty of opportunities to do this, and yet now in the secret of night, this is when you choose to do it. But nevertheless, Jesus submits because he know, knows what he must do. And then it says this, verse 50. Now, I want you to say this out loud with me. It says, then they what? Then they... Oh, depends on your translation. If you're reading the, the Black Bible, the CSB, it says, then they all. Now, this is significant. It says they all deserted him and ran away. All of his followers gone. Verse 51, now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following them. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. Now, here's why this is significant. These disciples who said that they would die with Jesus, that they would give their life to Jesus, that they would follow Jesus, it says that all of them fled and all of them left. This is after verse 23 earlier in Mark chapter 14, where the, Jesus is at the Last Supper and Mark tells us that they all drank the cup, right? They all committed their allegiance to Jesus. Or last week in chapter 31, where it says they all pledged to die with Jesus if they must. They all said that they would do this. And yet now, just a few hours later, with a little bit of resistance, it says that they all flee, right? They have really good intentions. They want to follow Jesus. They want to honor him. They want to lay their life down from him. And I think they really believed it, but yet they found themselves in a situation where no longer does following Jesus sound really good, or in fact, it's really, really hard. And so they flee. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this. For whatever reason, it made me think of a time in my life. Granted, the stakes were not the same as this story here. But when I was in college, my freshman year, I rushed and joined. I wanted to join a fraternity because one of my mentors was in a fraternity. I thought it was great. And so I go to college, went to UNC Wilmington, and I end up joining this fraternity. And I was like, you do the, do the rush week thing. They give you a pin or whatever. And I even told them, I was like, listen, I don't drink, but I, I'll do this thing. Obviously, I don't care if you guys do whatever. And to my surprise, they're like, we don't care. And so they're like, great. Now, when you join a fraternity or a sorority, that, that first semester, you pretty much have to do whatever they tell you you have to do, whenever they want it. And I kind of knew this going in, but then about two weeks into the semester, I get a call. It goes to voicemail. It was like a, during the day on Saturday. And it said, hey, I don't remember who it was. It was one of the fraternity brothers. It was like, hey, we're going to be at this bar tonight. And when we're done, we're going to call you to pick us up and bring us home. At which point I thought to myself, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to like wait around for whatever you want me to do. I'm like, I'm not going to do that. But I knew going in that you kind of do what they say. But then I was like, I'll be with my friends and I have to stop what I'm doing to go pick you up because you haven't playing. Like, I'm just not going to do it. And so I decided not to join because I was like, nope, ain't no one going to tell me what to do. So I'm still struggling with that. Now, again, that's a lighter story. But the same is true for us when it comes to following Jesus. Here's the reality. And here's what the disciples are also showing us very clearly. That all of us run from Jesus. All of us do. Not just the really bad people. Not just the people that are having a bad day. But even what we would consider the best of the best. The people who literally said, not only will we follow you, but we will die with you. At their first moment of testing, after promising all these things to Jesus, what do they do? 
they run. And if you're here this morning and you have this guilt and shame in your life because you feel like I've done this so many times, I, I don't know if this is encouraging to you or discouraging to you. Join the club. Join the club. All of us run for Jesus. In fact, I think sometimes we like to kind of play like I'm the worst of the worst game. We think that everyone else maybe deserves God's grace, but we don't. And so I play this game too, right? And so in my mind, how this works is, well, I'm a pastor and I know better. And I still sometimes do or say or think these things. All of us run from Jesus. In fact, uh, later in Romans chapter 3, it'll be on the screen, the Apostle Paul, who again was a Jewish leader who killed Christians before he became one, he wrote this in chapter 10, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 10. It says, as it is written, no one is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. All of us run from Jesus. And that's what the disciples are doing here. And so let's pick up the story again. Mark chapter 14, verse 53. Here's what Mark says next. It says, they led Jesus away to the high priest. This is the Jewish leader of the temple in Jerusalem, pretty much the highest person on the totem pole. And all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes assembled. Peter, Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples, followed him, followed Jesus at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. Uh, Peter was. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin, which were the legal counsel for the Jews, were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. So what's happening here is that Jesus gets arrested in the middle of the night, uh, taken uh, to essentially the high priest's quarters, and he's put on his first trial. Now it says Peter, after running away, kind of sees where they're going, follows at a distance. Uh, again, so much for following Jesus. He just wants to see what's going to happen. And then he goes to this fire uh, around the same time. He, he's part of the arresting party, or he hears part of the arresting party, and he's trying to hear what's going on from the courtyard, Try to, probably trying to listen in to this trial of what's happening. Now, of course, as a side note, we know right away that what is happening here is a sham trial that should not be happening. So real quick, just some background Jewish history of how this was supposed to work. Uh, trials were never to be held after sundown. Of course, this is happening in the middle of the night. Uh, in capital cases where they're trying to really essentially seek the death penalty, a guilty verdict required a second hearing the following day. So if they deliberate and they come to say, hey, you're guilty, they would have to, uh, they would have to deliberate a second day before they actually would kill you or find you guilty. Of course, that didn't happen because it's on the eve of Passover, and so they're not going to be meeting the next day. In fact, that's also another reason to show us that this isn't supposed to be happening, because trials of this magnitude were not supposed to happen on the eve of Sabbath or on the eve of Passover, because on those days, the, the court would not meet because they were supposed to be resting and honoring God. And so they shouldn't even be meeting for this trial to begin with. And it says the whole Sanhedrin was there. Now, the Sanhedrin numbered around 72 people. It's not necessarily that all the Sanhedrin was there, but everyone that was there was trying to get on the same page, or perhaps because they knew they were going to arrest Jesus. Perhaps literally all of them were actually there. But they're here again to, to try to convict Jesus, but they can't find anything credible. In fact, here's what it says next, verse uh, 56. It says, For many were giving false testimony against him, so against Jesus. And the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, stating, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made by human hands 
and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not even agree on this. And so again, just helpful to know, Jewish law required that you needed two witnesses with an agreeable testimony to convict somebody. Yet even in these false stories that were being made up about Jesus, they couldn't even get all their facts aligned to make their witness actually credible. They couldn't actually agree on all the details. Even although there were probably more given, Mark tells us one in particular, even the example about Jesus destroying the temple and rebuilding it in three days couldn't be correctly corroborated. Now, I think it is worth mentioning since Mark points it out. They're talking about the Jewish temple here. We have no, it's worth noting that Jesus doesn't actually say what they accuse him of saying. He doesn't say he is going to destroy the temple. What he does say, and Mark also records this as well in the Gospel of John, he talks about the temple being destroyed and that he will raise it in three days. Of course, he says this a little bit earlier in Mark 13 when he was talking about the end of the temple and the end of the world. Of course, he was referring to himself. What he was trying to say there, this temple, that everybody's coming to Jerusalem where God's presence resides, is going to be destroyed. But my temple, where God's presence is walking among you, will be raised three days later. But of course, he never actually says he will destroy the temple, and so they have nothing against him. So they're in a tough spate. They got arrested. Their testimonies don't agree. So here's what happens next, verse 60. It says, Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have an answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. In other words, he did not defend himself. Again, the high priest questioned him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And so for all this trial, Jesus says nothing. He is silent. He doesn't defend himself until he's provoked by the high priest for a response. And of course, he doesn't defend himself. He simply answers in the affirmative of what the high priest asked him. Now, of course, the New Testament was written in Greek. And so literally in Greek, what the high priest says is he says a statement in the form of a question. So literally what he says is you are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. So he says that statement in the form of the question. Blessed one was another word for God because many uh, God-fearing Jews did not actually say God's name out loud. And so they would use different synonyms to talk about God. And so what's ironic here in the gospel of Mark in this place is you have the high priest, although he doesn't believe it, is actually uttering the most complete Christological Jesus-exalting confession up until this point in the gospel of Mark. Again, ironically, it is here, and then in chapter 15, when Jesus is on the cross, where you have a Roman soldier who also does the same, similar, very similar thing, the two people, although the, the Roman soldiers seem to believe it, but the people that you would never expect, the high priest and someone in the Roman army whose goal was to give, to give their life to Caesar, not to God, or certainly not to the Christian God, proclaim Jesus as king. And of course, in Mark, what Mark is doing is he's connecting these last couple of chapters uh, to Jesus a lot, to the suffering servant of the Lord that the, God, that the prophet Isaiah writes about in Isaiah chapter 50 through 65. And again, we have it happening here. In Isaiah 53, it says this, he was opposed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. He did not defend himself. And so he, then it says this, verse 63, it says, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? 
They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him, and to beat him, saying, prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. Slapped him. So finally here, they have something that they can convict Jesus of, and it's really Jesus' own fault. It doesn't come from any of the false testimony. It comes from Jesus' own lips. Right? Jesus here claims the honor and the power of God himself, and so he gets accused of blasphemy. Of course, the irony is that Jesus can only be wrong and can only be committing blasphemy if what he says isn't true. Of course, they don't believe it's true, and so they're going to charge him with blasphemy. Now, again, what's also just helpful to know that they think he's blaspheming, and according to Jewish law, Jewish law this is punishable by death, but Jewish authorities uh, could not execute capital punishment because there was a, a large contingent of Jewish people, particularly in the Israeli-Palestinian area. They were allowed to self-govern themselves to a large degree, but there were certain things that they were not allowed to do that no one was allowed to do, and that one of those things was capital punishment. And so now, now they have convicted him, but they need to get the Romans on board so that they can actually have him killed, which is why Jesus is now going to be sent to Pilate. He's now going to be sent to the Roman leader of that area to try to get him on board so that they can actually have him killed. And so at this point, they simply beat him and they ship him off soon to meet with Pilate a few hours later. But again, back to this idea is what does Jesus do when we, uh, when we turn our back on him? Here's what the story, here's what Mark says next. Mark says next, uh, verse 66, if we pick up the story, chapter 14, it says this. It says, while Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway and the rooster crowed. And so again here, while Jesus' trial is going on, Peter is kind of going under, undergoing a trial of his own. Now, this is Passover, so this would have been March or April uh, in any number of these years where this was happening. And so in the area where they were at in the evening, in the middle of the night, it would get chilly. And so they would often make fires. Now, again, in the Greek, which I think is just helpful to know, in the English, it says he doesn't know. And then he says he doesn't understand. Well, the Greek word for know is oida, which denounced like a theoretical knowledge. Like, I don't really know of this guy that you're talking about. Like, who? Jesus. What are you talking? I don't even know who he is. And then when he doesn't understand, it's a Greek word epistemi, which denotes like a practical knowledge. In other words, he, he doesn't, he, what he's saying is, I don't even like theoretically know who this is, and I certainly don't practically know him. Like, I have no relationship with this man. I have no idea who he is, so certainly I don't actually know him. And then he leaves, and he walks out of the courtyard to distance himself a little bit further, because no doubt he's afraid that if he gets caught up being one of Jesus' closest supporters, well, something bad might happen to him. But then it says this, verse 69, said, when the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those standing nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you're also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear. I don't know this man you're talking about. 
And Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the word to him, this was a couple weeks ago, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. So here you have Peter goes from denying Jesus to one person to now denying him in front of an entire group. And then his accent gives him away. When it says you're also a Galilean, some of the other gospel accounts say they could tell by his accent where he was from. He certainly wasn't from around there. And so that gives it away. People are more convinced, no, you are definitely one of his followers. And then what does he do? He rejects Jesus as boldly as anyone could. Likely what's happening here is he's also cursing God's name, which a devout Jew was never supposed to do. He's going off. He's doing what he said he would never do, what he desired to never do, yet he found himself in a difficult, tricky, hard situation and is doing something he thought was unimaginable, even though Jesus told him he would do it. He does it, the rooster crows again, and he is reminded that Jesus' prediction of this event has actually happened. That this man who promised to never lead Jesus, this man who led the charge in verse 31 of Mark 14 to say, we will die with you if we must. He is the man, this man who says, I will, do, I will lay my life down for you, curses his name and curses God's name. Upon this realization, upon the rooster crowing, he realizes what he has done and he is devastated. Now, just imagine for a second, you're Peter, right? You're scared, you're confused, you're afraid, and then you do what you said you would never do. You do what you would think, what you would consider is unthinkable. You failed and you've blown it. And so when we want to talk about not deserving God's forgiveness, I just want to lay this here. Good luck be beating Peter. Good luck. Promised, even literally, he was going to cut this guy, trying to cut a guy's head off. But then push came to shove. He, lied, he failed him. He denied him. And I think one of the things that Mark is trying to show us as we read this account is this, that our faithfulness can never be assumed. Our faithfulness can never be assumed. And we think, I'm never going to blow it. I'm never going to fall short. I'm always going to be good. Well, that's when we can begin to have problems. Again, Peter here thought that he would die for Jesus, but what he really needed was Jesus to die for him. That's what he needed. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus is going to do. And then after Jesus's resurrections, I always want to point something out here. We're going to read this in a couple of weeks, but I just want to point out to you how the gospel of Mark ends. Here's how the gospel of Mark ends. After Jesus' resurrection, three days later, when, Jesus, when Peter, of course, is devastated, he's humiliated, he has, done he has done worse than everyone else other than Judas who actually betrayed him. Like, not only did he flee, but he denied him and he cursed him. After his resurrection, the women go to the tomb early in the morning on a Sunday morning. They're going to anoint Jesus' body with spices and oils. And then it says this. They're greeted by angels. Mark chapter 16, verse 7. I think it'll be on the screen. It says this. The angels tell the women this. But go. Tell his disciples and Peter. He is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. What are they saying? They're saying, Peter, he needs to come. Peter, who blew it, who denied it, who went off on him. He needs to know that Jesus still loves him and still cares for him and still forgives him. Tell his disciples and make sure Peter knows that he needs to be there. Peter needs to come, even though he certainly felt unworthy of it. 
and listen to bigger or lesser degrees. We've all been there. God, I'm going to follow you. God, I'm going to honor you. God, I'm going to try to do the honorable thing. But then we find ourselves in situations where it's hard, right? God, I'm going to be generous. Like if you ever give me that raise or give me that bonus, I'm going to, I'm going to honor you. I'm going to be generous financially. But then you get that unexpected raise or that unexpected bonus and you start to think, but yeah, there's a lot of stuff around the house that needs to be fixed. Or there's a lot of things that need to be upgraded. And we thought theoretically we would do it, but then we have the opportunity and it's like, well, maybe I'll take a pass on this one. Where we say, you know, I'm not going to gossip. I'm going to try to speak honorably about people. But then there comes a moment where you have the inside information that you know if you share it, it'll be a big bonus for your friend group or for your coworkers or for your classmates. You will be the one that everyone talks about because you know what's going on. Or maybe you think, man, I'm going to try to honor God, pure, purity. I'm going to flee from pornography and from lust and all these things. And you find yourself scrolling on your phone and you come to an image that you didn't seek out. But instead of scrolling past, you stop and you linger. And it leads you places that you did not intend to go, but you fell into it when you saw, listen, we've all been there. And this is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus says, hey, listen, in your brokenness, in your shame, and in your regret, you're invited. You're invited. Even if you hear me rightly feel unworthy of it. You're invited. Again, we all, and I think in our minds, think, I'm going to do the right thing, or we all generally desire, genuinely desire to do the right thing, but then when it's no longer easy, we kind of step back and think, I'm not so sure about this. Right? If we think back to maybe the opening story of Jose Rivera and all these sort of things trying to get this money, uh, Jesus here, just so you know, like this young translator, Jesus doesn't say, shoot him. Like that's what he doesn't say. What does he say? He says, I'll take it. I'll take the punishment. I'll take the death. Our Messiah who came in the form of a man, lived a perfect life, gave his life up for his disciples and for us, fulfilled God's wrath, he understood his punishment on the cross so that he could be the perfect atoning and sacrifice for our sins, says you, says Peter, says all of us are invited. And I want you to come. I think this is why later towards, closer towards the end of Peter's life before he was executed uh, in Rome as well, in the book of 2 Peter, towards the end of the New Testament, Peter writes this, it'll be on the screen. It says, the Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. There's a little doubt in my mind Peter's not thinking back to what we just read here as he writes this story. I think it's also worth knowing, perhaps you remember this, perhaps you don't, that we know for various reasons that one of the primary sources for Mark's gospel is Peter. Why would Peter want such a humiliating story of himself in the gospels that everyone is going to read and to see? Well, I think it's because he's trying to tell us this, again, that when you turn your back on Jesus, he won't turn his back on you. Again, that's the question this morning. What does Jesus do when we turn our back on him? Well, what he doesn't do is turn his back on us. What he does do is that even when he was with his disciples at the last supper, saying that they're all saying they're going to, they're going to follow him knowing, and even says, you're actually, none of you are going to do what you say you're going to do. I'm still going to give my life for you. 
I'm still going to pour out my blood for you. I'm still going to have my body broken for you. And so listen, if you're here this morning and you're struggling and you think of the ways that, that you've turned your back on God or the ways that you've gone your own way or the things that you have said or the things that you have done and you feel unworthy of God's grace, I think what God would want, you to, say, would, would want to say to you this morning is make sure that you come. Tell Peter, tell the disciples, tell everyone who abandoned me that they need to come and experience my grace and my forgiveness. Jesus, not wanting anyone to perish, said, over my dead body, Peter needs to be here, and so do you. So let's pray.